Welcome back. This is a blog post series on the four stages of self-defense, at least as we teach it, or as I teach it, for Urban Tactics Krav Maga. But first, this podcast is brought to you by, no surprise, Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions since 2013. Or another way to say it, turning everyday citizens into everyday warriors. You can train with us in person, at least when restrictions lift, at urbantacticskm.com. Of course, we're doing private lessons uh, when I'm available. And you can also follow us on Instagram, Urban Tactics Krav Maga, Twitter, at Urban Tactics KM, and Facebook, Urban Tactics Krav Maga. You can also follow me at The Pondering Krav East, although that's mostly food photos. So, you know, if you like that kind of stuff, and you can also learn online www.utkmu.com. Uh, content is limited now to our beginner and novice curriculum, but in the absence of training in person, this may be beneficial to you. And of course, you can see the kind of structured program I've put together, starting from basic to advanced. As I know, a lot of Krav Maga programs either are very complicated with way too much stuff, or they lack structure at all. So opportunity to check that out www.utkmu.com i think i said one too many w's there but whatever and of course don't forget our blog utkmblog.com where i actually post the articles i use for this and other stuff um i'm trying to build up more um content these days so hopefully i'll be be more consistent with that it's hard balancing like two businesses in this so anyways listen to the warriors den warriors den you're listening to the warriors den warriors den brought to you by urban tactics krav maga turning lambs into lions okay so the four stages of self-defense are the strategy in which you must apply your actual technique. You cannot simply just uh, use technique on its own. Remember, Kramaga is supposed to be principle-based, not technique-based. Part of that is strategy, right? Critical thinking is something I talk about a lot. You can have all the techniques in the world, but if you can't critically think under duress to be able to apply things, then it's going to be a very big problem. So we have to understand the strategy, which is the stages of self-defense, and that you have to move from one uh, to the other. And you can see various models of how to apply use of force. Right? I talk about it in use of force uh, for another time, but I won't get into detail per se on this one. But police will have a use of force model where they have to follow a strategy. There's also, you know, very common the OODA loop, and I'll talk about that uh, shortly. OODA loop is an American thing, which I never heard about, by the way, until uh, I took a seminar with a very famous American uh, self-defense expert. Wasn't overall impressed because I feel like they were just doing a circuit, checked out, didn't really care that much anymore. I won't drop names, but it, w it gave me some introduction to how uh, an American audience thinks because there's different acronyms for anything. So I'm just going to read first the basics overview of the stages of self-defense as I have 
on utcamblog.com under uh, KM and SND principles. And then I'll read a bunch more other stuff. But I'll start with this. The stages of self-defense. When people think of Krav Maga or even self-defense in general, they often fail to understand the complex nature and progression of violent situations. In the post on use of force, a maze-like graph provides a visual visualization of how complex a situation can get from a second-to-second decision-making perspective. Almost all violent attacks are because of a failure to be aware and avoid the situation. However, it is also possible that the situation due to circumstances was unavoidable, which means how we approach it will be fundamentally different. There are two primary reasons that you are unable to foresee or avoid conflict. 1. You were not paying attention, and your awareness level was probably at white. See awareness color code. The attacker had been planning it. That's number 2, and their tactics and approach are simply better. While you may see variations of the model presented below, we offer a simplified version of the basic four stages of progressing in a self-defense situation. Ideally, you should employ step one as often as possible, as you win 100% of the fights you are not in. Remember, however, that at any point you may find yourself in any one of the stages, which means you must respond appropriately and progress in order. Avoidance. If you do not put yourself in a situation where conflict is required, then you will not have conflict in the first place. Avoidance can mean many things. It can mean you identify a threat and run away, or that you ensure through wise choices that you are rarely encounter situations requiring conflict. Perhaps it means not walking in a dark alley at night alone. This seems like common sense, but many people routinely make poor decisions that naturally put them in situations more conducive to conflict. Perhaps avoidance means not going to a party hosted by a person who doesn't like you. Knowing conflict will result if you go. Maybe it's deciding to leave a coffee shop after noticing someone acting strangely, or simply making yourself aware of them so that you are prepared if they do something. In the avoidance stage, the threat may not even be aware of you as a target. Of course, we recognize that avoidance is not always possible, and as such, we move down the progression scale. De-escalation, formerly known as diffusion. At this point, in a conflict, the threat has actively identified you. This is the stage to which many first world countries like to advocate, the moment to talk it out. This is essentially the diplomacy stage. In Canada, 9 out of 10 times, you can talk your way out of a potentially dangerous situation. In some countries, however, if a threat has identified you, like it or not, you will have no choice but to run or skip to step 3 or 4. If you can talk your way out of a conflict, do so. At the very least, you should talk as a distraction while you find your exit and run. Either way, you will remain on the defensive. In this situation, you must be in a semi-passive stance or something equivalent. Your hands must be up, not in aggressive fashion, but ready to act should the threat decide. Talking is over and attack. If they attack first, you will be jumping right to reactive self-defense stage 4. However, in an attempt to de-escalate, you assess through observation 
of indicators that they are becoming more and more aggressive, then we recommend you strike first, stage three, moving down the progression scale to a preemptive action strategy. Preemptive self-defense or preemptive action. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. This is a common saying that could not be truer in a street self-defense scenario because of the concept of action versus reaction. It is always more beneficial to act first, as this means you will one, be one step ahead of the threat. We cannot tell you when or how to act first, as it is completely up to you to assess when it is required. But we can tell you that when you do strike, you must strike hard, fast, and with retsif. Relentless attacks mean to, mean to overwhelm. You must attack with the goal to stop the threat. If at any point you feel that the threat is neutralized, you must assess and either detain the individual or run to safety. Stage 4. Reactive self-defense or reactive action. If you are reacting to defend yourself rather than acting, it means something has gone wrong. It means you failed to use steps 1 through 3. Either you have grossly misread the entire situation or the tactics the threat is using are simply better than yours. Regardless of why, you are now reacting to defend yourself and stop the threat from doing you harm. This is where explosive aggressive aspects of Krav Maga come in. It's not good enough to simply block. You must block and attack using Retsev's escape or stop the attacker from wishing to continue. So fundamentally, the stages are avoidance 1, De-escalation 2, formerly diffusion. I used to use diffusion because uh, I like it like a bomb, diffusing a bomb. However, globally, the uh, de-escalation is a more uh, universally used terminology. So we're just switching to that. I concede. Stage 3 is preemptive, strike first. And reaction, stage 4, is last. Now, avoidance and de-escalation is what they teach in Western countries most in the school systems as far as um you know negotiation etc avoid as much as you can keep things calm striking first becomes uh, legal issues of course we're going to talk about that and reactive self-defense is where actually a lot of kramaga training comes in what happens when you're completely overwhelmed that's the hard part when we're overwhelmed we're paying attention now in that you heard me talk about a couple other concepts now remember kramaga is a principle based strategy uh, a system rather and you have to understand beyond the techniques how to apply it so the first thing and the primary thing we're going to go over in this podcast is the four stages of self-defense using examples from our blog post and that is the stages of violence from avoiding it to actually fighting whether you preemptively striked or not but there's a few other concepts you really must understand prior to uh, being able to apply your techniques. So I'm going to go through those so you have a better understanding. Again, these are off of uh, the uh, principles, uh, self-defense principles and uh, techniques on the uh, UTKM blog. So then one sec. So as we teach it, I mentioned action versus reaction, right? And the general is perceive, analyze, formulate, action. Very similar to OODA loop, which I'll talk about shortly. But I'll read from this uh, post first. Action versus reaction. Stages of mental processing. 
Action preemptive versus reactive. When it comes to human versus human situation, action is always faster than reaction. Human brains are all made up of the same stuff and operate in a relatively similar fashion. We all have neurons and our brains generally function with the same brain chemistry and processes. Most people will have approximately the same action-reaction potential with regards to response times. While there are, of course, exceptions, as in the case of extreme athletes, most people will fall within similar parameters. Below, the action versus action-reaction concept is broken down into the four basic steps to processing information for the purposes of self-defense. The names given may be similar to standard processes models, but are simplified for the purpose of self-defense model. Number one, perceive. This is the initial identification of attack or action, the oh shit moment when you identify an imminent threat. Two, analyze. At this point, your brain examines the threat to context of your situation to determine what to do. The brain will consider the speed and trajectory of the threat his or her size and shape, the direction of any escape routes, and numerous other identifiers. 3. Formulate. Now, you are consciously thinking about what to do and searching your memory for the appropriate response. Do you run? Do you fight? Do you freeze? 4. Action. Finally, based on your perception and analysis, you now act on your plan. Both an attacker and defender are going through the same stages, which can take approximately 0.25 seconds, give or take, to move through all four. However, in a life-or-death situation, this can seem like an eternity. If you fail to recognize and act in response, you now find yourself relegated to a reactive action rather than a preemptive action. You are now playing a game of catch-up. Your attacker may be at stage four with a punch, while you are at stage 2 or 3 if you fail to give yourself enough space or cannot counterreact fast enough, that punch will now hit you. Your goal is to always engage in an aggressive fashion should you find yourself in a mental color code red, so that you are constantly resetting your attacker's mental process to 1 or 2. This can be done by off-balancing causing pain or resetting their mental processes through disruption. Because of this model and how your brain processes information, action is always faster than reaction. The four stages of self-defense, as taught by UTKM, must keep this processing in mind and approach violence in the appropriate order so that a defender always has the options to engage with a preemptive action rather than a reactive action. So I was originally introduced to this by uh, Nir Maman of CT707. It's possible he got it from the OODA loop and made some modifications. Uh, that is basically talking about what your brain is doing. And there was a key thing there, uh, 0.25 seconds. Right? There's four stages, give or take. There's some models with a fifth stage. But the process that your physiological and electrical signals are going on in your brain from identifying a threat, perceived, to acting on the threat. Right? Now, your brain is constantly doing this throughout all four stages of self-defense. Uh, whether it be avoid, diffuse, or, or rather uh, de-escalate, got to get used to changing it again, or, you know, reactive or defensive. Your brain is doing this every second, right? That's why when we cause pain off balance disrupt, we are actually trying to disrupt this mental process. Now, 
This is as I teach it here because I think it's just it's a little simpler and it's more to the uh, brain processing. Um, but let's talk about the OODA loop. So this is off of Wikipedia. So the OODA loop is a cycle, observe, orient, decide, act, development. So it's almost a similar, different. it's observe, orient before instead of the ones I listed, and decide and act are pretty sep uh, similar. Developed by military strategist, the United States Air Force Colonel John Boyd. Boyd applied the concept of combat operations process often at the operational level during military campaigns. It is now also often applied to understanding commercial operations and learning processes, etc. So as you can see, this is to do with brain processes. What is your brain doing? You need to understand how you work in order to understand how strategy works, right? And this does um, link into things like the fight-flight mechanism for actual violence, um, but I'm not going to get into it too much on uh, this particular podcast. However, before I go on with a few of my uh, the actual posts for this series that I'm going to talk about more in depth, we need to understand one or two more concepts. I'm not going to go into them in depth again. Now, one of them is called RETZEF, R-E-T-Z, or Z for you Americans, E-F, which simply means constant continuous attack. So if you're on stage four of, uh, of the mental process or the OODA loop, ACT, right, and you need to be violent, it's RETSEV. We don't go for knockouts, we do constant and continuous attack. Or if I'm deciding to do a preemptive attack, I need to understand a preemptive attack is where I would apply RETSEV. Once I strike, I keep going until, uh, the, process, until the threat is stopped. So I'm just going to read again off of the UTKM blog. RETSEV, constant continuous attack. RETSEV is an offensive strategy that... When choosing to fight, we must implement in any and all self-defense scenarios. Retsev means a constant, continuous attack in which the intention is to overwhelm your opponent with constant pressure. Essentially, crazy beats big. The more ferocious, more relentless, and more aggressive your attack, the more likely you are to overcome an opponent, even a larger one, even if just for a moment. That moment, however, may be just the thing you need to escape and evade to safety. When following the stages of self-defense, you must find yourself unable to apply the first two stages, avoid and defuse or de-escalate, and end up being forced to preemptive strike, or, if you are caught off guard, a reactive situation. Retsev works because of a principles of action versus reaction, the stages of mental processing, by applying a constant and continuous pressure while causing pain off balancing and disrupting, you will be constantly resetting your opponent's mental processes back to stage one or two of the four, allowing you to overwhelm them. If only for a short time, you should also be bursting in charging from long range to close range in order to gain control of your attacker. At this point, you can either disengage and run, or perform a takedown for a detain or arrest. This strategy not only works on a micro scale, it can work on the macro. Consider war. Retsev is a strategy applied by the IDF. Any engagement should be swift and with such force that the enemy has little time to recuperate in the moment. The crazy beats big strategy is one of the reasons IDF has been so successful over the years. Consider also guerrilla tactics. Here, Retsev is a strategy that applies in a different sense. While constantly attacking a larger force and then disappearing just to do it again, you put immense strain on the larger force's resources and morale. Off balance and disrupt? On the micro scale, of course, 
Your goal is to simply overwhelm the senses of an attacker long enough to apply your self-defense strategy, whether it be to run or to detain. If you fail to apply a Retsev, any break in pressure could be the moment your attacker needed to recover and then apply their strategy. This split-second break can be catastrophic, as in cases where your attacker is much bigger, they may only need to hit you once to win their fight. One of the deciding factors in whether to move or decision is appropriate when applying Retsev is whether it is a passive movement or an active movement. Passive movement, an intentional or unintentional movement that does not cause pain off balance or disrupt. Active movement, an intentional or unintentional movement that does cause pain off balance disrupt. When applying Retsev, each motion will be an active motion with limited delay in between each successive attack. So remember, if you're going to attack in the name of self-defense, it must be with constant, continuous, aggressive pressure. Are you confused yet? If you're new to Krav Maga and you're listening to this, or any self-defense, and all you've learned is techniques and no concepts, I believe your instructors have failed you. Techniques are where everyone starts, but they're actually less important at the earlier stages of training. One, because a lot of people aren't realistically going to stick around and you need to understand these concepts before you can apply it. If you don't understand Retsiv, jumping to uh, preemptive striking will be problematic. If you only know punching, you can still apply Retsiv with it. But if you uh, think only one punch will suffice in a preemptive strike, then you are falling into your ego that you're going to be able to knock out everyone. So that's why these concepts are super important. Again, that can be found KMD and SMD principles on the Itikim blog. Now, one more thing that we really need to discuss is your mental state from, say, uh, conscious-unconscious. While the mental processing, right, is the four stages, right, analyze, perceive, uh, decide, act, or the OODA loop, right, observe, orient, decide, act. That's really specifically to the actual physical nature of your mental uh, capacity, you know, a stimulus is given through your eyes or your sense of touch, proprioception. Your brain does a basic process. On a more evolved sense, though, we have our conscious and unconscious uh, sort of connections related to our mental state. Uh, this could be considered a form of mindfulness. This is how you get people to think about their emotional state when they're tougher. You know, quote, quote, toxic masculinity is a bunch of bullshit. But anyways, so it's really important also to understand your awareness color codes, right? There are far more concepts, but these are the ones that you really need to understand before applying the four stages of self-defense. Remember, four stages of self-defense is your strategy, how to move from one stage to the other in a situation involving violence. Retsev is what you do, how you apply your techniques once you start getting physical, right? And action versus reaction is simply understanding what is your brain doing. But the awareness color code is understanding what state your mind and nervous system is so that you can either bring yourself down so you can calm down and think better or you need to jack it up to deal with a possible threat. So I'm going to read this from, again, the blog. The Color Code. Stages of Mental Awareness or Situational Awareness. In 1989, Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Cooper, a former U.S. Marine and creator of the modern technique of gunfighting wrote Principles of Personal Self-Defense. 
and easy to understand guide to training oneself to avoid dangerous conflict. Cooper had long been famous for teaching his mental awareness color code, a system that employs the colors white, yellow, orange, and red to indicate the levels of awareness a person is experienced. Black was added later by the U.S. Marine Corps. After realizing what behaviors extreme psychological stress can cause, the awareness color code is a simplified view of a person's stress and awareness under stressful, potentially dangerous situations. It is important to know, both in Kramaga and in life, at what level you are at in order to avoid reaching code black, a key concept often heard in Kramaga situational awareness. This is usually taught in class as the awareness of physical surroundings. Here you must ask yourself things like, are there multiple attackers? Are there weapons? Do I have a viable escape route? However, a big part of the situational awareness is also being aware of your personal mental state and your ability to act or react appropriately in given situations. Enter the awareness color code, an easy-to-guide to understanding your mental state at any given time. White, unaware and unprepared. This is you sitting relaxed on the couch after a large meal. Often students like to test an instructor with a surprise attack, even if a black belt is teaching, but as is at white level, any person could easily sucker punch even the most accomplished martial artist. This is a relaxed and unassuming state. You are not anticipating an attack and are relaxed in both mental and physical sense. This is a state you should be in only when in a safe environment. Yellow. Relaxed alert. Most animals, such as cats or dogs, spend most of their time in this state. To quote Cooper's book, quote, Observe your cat. It is difficult to surprise him. Why? Naturally, in his superior hearing is part of the answer, but not all of it. He moves well using his senses. He is not preoccupied with irrelevancies. He is not thinking about his job, his image, or his income taxes. He's putting first things first, principally his physical security. Jeff Cooper, 2006, Principles of Personal Self-Defense, Revised Edition, page 14, Paladin Press. In this stage, you are relaxed but still paying attention. It would be harder to surprise a person at this stage, but they are still not experiencing a level of stress, just simple awareness. It must be understood that being at yellow or relaxed alert is not paranoia. If one were to mentally be at orange, or higher on the scale on a regular basis, identifying everything as a threat, whether real or imaginary, then you would then be moving into paranoia. Remember, relaxed alert is just that, relaxed. You can stay here indefinitely without any issues, other than being more prepared to perceive, analyze, formulate, and act against identified threats. Orange, specific alert. This is the level of awareness you experience when you have identified a specific area or person of concern and your attention is now focused. A nefarious looking uh, individual moving towards you or perhaps a soldier on patrol assessing windows and doors. While yellow is a stage you can maintain indefinitely, orange requires a mental concentration. Consider working an 8-hour job. Statistically, most work is done before noon as people still have the mental focus to be productive. The same goes for orange. Stay here for too long, and you will begin to read the situation incorrectly. Red. Fight. 
Either the situation was unavoidable or you misread it, but you are now actively engaged in a fight or a conflict. Imagine a car tachometer. How long can it stay redlined until the engine blows? The same goes for a fight. How long can you maintain this level of intensity, both mentally and physically? This is why for us, as Krav Maga practitioners, Kravists, we try to limit the time spent in red and end it as soon as possible. Black. Catastrophic breakdown or a non-functional freeze. If you hit black, you have experienced a complete catastrophic breakdown, mentally, physically, or both. The longer you spend at, this condition, uh, at condition red, the more likely you are to trip into black. A persistent example of this would be shell-shocked or PTSD. However, some people go straight from white, white or yellow to black, and this would be a freeze reaction, which is when your nervous system is overwhelmed and shuts down instead of entering fight or flight. You can avoid this by training properly. So you can tell your brain that in body knows how to react appropriately to violent stress. However, it is impossible to know who will experience this before it happens. Some people are prone to it and some people are not. It is also important to have proper mental decompression if you spend too much time at orange or red. If you experience this or anything like it and have survived a violent confrontation, we advise that you seek professional counseling to ensure that you do not suffer from depression or post-traumatic stress as a result. Proper professional debriefing and possibly therapy will help both practically and emotionally. See the stages of self-defense for more information. So, again, there's so much you have to know before you can even apply the strategy of the four stages of self-defense. Super important. Um, and a lot of people especially early on in training, ignore the concepts. Remember, Krav Maga is principle-based. Without the principles, it's not Krav Maga. It's the principles that make it what it is, and then the training methodology. The techniques will change from time to time as per the principle that things need to change. But if you have a hard time with understanding these concepts, hey, they're on the blog, I put them out there, you need to understand them. I am so sick and tired, personally, of instructors glossing over it because they can't be bothered to read a goddamn book of how the body works and how the brain works or because they're just muscle-headed idiot teachers. Sorry, if you're one of these people, grow up and be better that only focus on the aggression and, uh, and the technical aspect. Traditional martial artists will focus on technique Army guys who did Army Krav Maga will focus on aggression. And in general, a lot of Israelis who teach Krav Maga don't care about the conceptual stuff. Possibly because they don't have the words in English to explain it properly. Totally fair. That's a legitimate reason not to. But to avoid it all completely, as some instructors do, is to me obscene. Again, Krav Maga is principle-based. And you cannot avoid these things. And people need to understand what they are doing. Techniques on their own are only so good. If a person, especially new people, isn't going to put in the time to develop their nervous system, you need to understand the concepts. So military guys might say, you know, we don't need to understand these concepts like the strategy of self-defense, the four stages, which I will get into, I promise. Uh, you know, they're not wrong. You need to train your nervous system. But the reality is, in the military of three, six, a year, two years condensed training non-stop and it'll really develop your nervous system 
The average civilian, when learning stuff, doesn't do that. And it's going to take years until their nervous systems are properly trained. If they're casually training, you know, an hour, maybe three hours a week, more even a more serious four to six hours a week, uh, you know, it's still going to take some time. So that's why the concepts are super important. If you understand your strategy and the concepts, more importantly, early on, you'll be able to apply your techniques better when you're still developing them, if that makes sense. I know a lot of people don't like this approach to teaching because it's not, ah, I'm not getting my adrenaline dump that I want, but sorry, this is called teaching methodology and you need to apply it both in teaching and learning. So I think that's it sort of the, the presets. Uh, we can, there are, again, a lot more concepts I have, but these are ones that are really important to understand prior to understanding the strategy of the four stages of self-defense. Now, uh, the blog post that we wrote, uh, some of the examples I are my examples and some are my students' examples. Um, basically, in the blog post, we'll go through examples of situations where we applied the correct techniques uh, or applied the strategy, rather, not the correct techniques. Hopefully, correct techniques. Now, again, I don't actually have that much stage four because I avoid. I do, but not that many stories. So I have to draw from other people as well. So let's start at the beginning, right? We have avoidance, we have de-escalation or diffusion, if you're reading an older thing from me, uh, preemptive and reactive. So let's start with avoidance. The four stages of self-defense. Avoidance. The four stages of self-defense as taught by UTKM is the basic order of operation for which you are doing when presented with conflict, be it physical, social, or otherwise. The order moving from best option to worst is avoidance, diffusion, preemptive, self-defense, strike first, reactive, self-defense, react last. Understanding the basics is easy, but like all concepts, understanding when and how to apply them correctly can be trickier. The major reason for this is the simple fact that if you do not truly understand what you are doing and you lack the experience to make quick and correct decisions and you do not have your instructor whispering the answer into your ear. The real-world situations is suddenly more complicated than it was in training. Grasping the nuanced application of a technique, how and why it works, and when to employ it can be the result of you being fortunate enough to possess an innate ability to understand intricate contexts, or as more common, it can be accomplished through consistent training. Consistent training makes up for the talent by internalizing the details, purpose, and application of a given technique or reaction in a scenario to the point that your nervous system and decision-making process will, more often than not, fire correctly under duress. To help foster a better understanding of these key concepts, I and others at UTKM will be sharing real-world experiences relating to the four stages. Each week, we will expand upon one of these concepts and give examples. This week, it is first and arguably the more important stage, avoidance. Quote, you win 100% of the fights you're not in, quote, near Maman. First, you must accept the fact that you cannot always avoid. For example, applying avoidance as a self-defense tactic for interpersonal conflict will most likely result in per further problems. The concept of avoidance simply suggests that it may be better to avoid than to confront in most situations. However, and this applies particularly when it comes to bullying or active violence, sometimes the best option is to directly confront the source of conflict. 
After all, Kramaga was built on the idea that sometimes running is not an option. So please do not interpret this stage as permission to be passive-aggressive or to never deal with life's problems. That is not the, the correct application of this concept. And honestly, if avoidance is always your choice, chosen option in life, then this may be indicative of other deeper problems you are struggling with. So let's start with an example from my youth. One. First example. It was Halloween night. Unlike most young teens, I was maybe 15 or 16, I wanted to go out. In our area, big house parties were not a common occurrence at the time, but what was all too common were hordes of teens and young adults roaming the streets like a hungry pack of wolves, looking for fun and perhaps trouble. I was with the group of friends I usually ran with at the time, and we ended up crossing paths with another pack of teens, walking together with them in costume, masks, and painted faces with candy and fireworks in hand. Legal then, but illegal now. Likely due to these same ravenous packs of near-dwellers getting up to yearly mischief. Definitely. We were on the boredom-fueled prowl. Some confident and bold, others just trying to fit in. In my case, the latter seems like it was an appropriate category. I mean, is that not what one of the best features of Halloween is? You get to dress up and pretend to be something else, something grander, something more powerful? It is, after all, All Hell's Eve, where dressing up as something scary was meant to fend off the roaming spirits and demons that walk the earth on this night every year, so the legend goes. But masks and makeup can only mask you for so long. One of the older boys in a mask I did not recognize, clearly a leader, out in front, loud, obnoxious, identified himself to me. It turned out this masked individual was someone who might had issues with in the past. He was also dangerous, in the literal sense much like that of a hungry alpha. He regularly got in fights and won, regularly had police interactions, the circumstances of which were anything but innocent fun, and he may or may not have had ties with even more violent individuals who were known to police. He was also much bigger than me, a good bit stronger, and far more athletic, which, through a child's eyes, was a terrifying thing. Even though I consider myself tougher than perhaps I was, like most males, overestimated my skills. I had no training and no experience, just an overinflated ego. It was, of course, dark, and I did not like things coming out of the guy's mouth nor the energy in the air. The feeling of fun turned into a dread and uneasy churning in my gut, yet to be filled with candy. It was uncomfortable, concerned that the horde was full of individuals who did not, in fact, like me, not to mention the de facto alpha. This was not an ideal for an enjoyable night. So I decided to listen to my instincts. It was time to leave. My pace slowed, I fell to the back of the crowd, then quietly but swiftly faded into the dark, walking to my home a few blocks away. Later, when I was asked by my cohort where I had disappeared to, I made up some plausible story. The reality is, it was probably the right decision. Those uneasy feelings we have may be wrong sometimes, but it is often better to err on the side of caution, as we know how things will escalate. There is one thing for certain. If you are not feeling your best, or you are uncomfortable, it can be easy to do or say the wrong thing and cause a situation to quickly shift from manageable to disastrous. So in that case, with those personalities, avoidance was the best choice. No harm, no foul, no hospital. 2. Also for teenage years. I was an awkward teen with no sense of who I really was yet. 
which meant I was not great with the opposite sex. So when female friends came into the mix, it was always a joy and an uneasy excitement, the kind only a teenage boy knows. For a time, I frequently hung out with two girls who were a year or two younger than me. Feelings were always mixed, as I liked them each at different times, which meant I would often go out of my way to spend time with them. Lacking experience and confidence, of course, things never went the way I had imagined. Nevertheless, it was a fun at the time. Like many youth lacking good mentoring and guidance, I had trouble controlling my temper. I would never hurt anyone, but it was obvious to all those around me. Like a tornado striking down in an open field, I was loud, boisterous, and to some, terrifying, as the fear that destruction might come your way. This is something I still work on daily, though with a calmer mind, maturity, and fewer raging hormones, it is much easier to manage. One of these girls had a cousin, equally attractive in my eyes, someone who I had met previously at a random community party. She was troubled. If I am informed correctly, those troubles continue to impact her adulthood. Whenever she came around to join us, it never went well. I was positive she would intentionally say or do things to elicit my temper and unleash the tornado for her amusement. I was cold, dry air. She was warm, humid air. The inciting words and actions were the required updraft. Everyone said I was either crazy or imagining it. Nonetheless, there came a point at which I could no longer stand to be around her. So the strategy employed was avoidance. Anytime she randomly show up, I would find a reason to leave. If she was already there with my friends, I would make other plans. Everyone thought I was being unreasonable. However, I did not like having my fun outings turned into episodes of anger. Thus, to me, it seemed like a better choice. It also prevented me from hitting a breaking point and actually doing something I would regret, despite the fact it made me look even more weird and unstable socially. In many respects, I probably made the right decision practicing avoidance. Side note, in hindsight, and perhaps reframing the situation, it turns out this girl may have actually liked me. I was told by someone later down the road that she was actually very likely trying to elicit my aggression on the account of her secret, let's say, fetish for violence. Had I been more confident, then perhaps I would have handled it differently and allowing my cold, dry air to meet her warm, humid air, but given my lack of knowledge at the time, avoidance was still the best strategy. Lest the tornado met the hurricane and all hell broke loose. It probably wouldn't have been good for anyone anyways. 3. From adulthood. If you think bullies disappear after high school, you may have practiced avoidance a little too much, and may have been in fact a shut-in who is living in a perpetual state of self-imposed exile. As the internet has shown us, most people are not as stable and confident as you think, and many have bully-like tendencies, at the very least, trying to use force, intimidation, or aggression to get what they want, or they simply have not learned to manage their anger like others, and emotionally lash out at people when they are challenged, or whenever things do not go their way. I learned to deal with these people early in my youth, and as an adult I tolerated even less. I, of course, generally employ stage 2 diffusion as much as I can, using my words to avoidance, as stage 3 and 4, outside of physical violence, are not at all appropriate in day-to-day life in a civil society. Which means, as an adult, mastering the first two stages is that much more important. Especially when you live with a strata, condo or townhouse. 
Personally, I despise Stratas, as that's all easy, too easy for a bully or someone who has a bully-like attitude to get on a council and try to tell others how to act or live or has a personality that leads them to take issue with being challenged due to their perceived powers. I personally think Stratas have been nothing but a disaster and will go away like the dinosaurs eventually, but until then, you, like me, will likely have to deal with them at some point. Without getting too detailed, there was some conflict between me and those on a strata council. Whether I was in the wrong or the right isn't important. Sometimes I was, sometimes I wasn't. However, several members of the council seemed to think it acceptable and appropriate to yell and scream at people when they don't like what was said or done. This is, of course, utterly inappropriate. And in the adult world could constitute bullying and harassment. Obviously, this is something I will not tolerate. Extensively researched, well-worded letters were sent. The goal of these letters was not to demand compliance one way or another, but rather to make it clear that I am not the kind of person to pick a fight with, verbally, physically, or otherwise. Initially, they got the hint and basically stopped bothering me. Later, another incident occurred where a member of council once again decided to scream at me. After making it clear that this was an appropriate and futile tactic, it didn't seem to matter. They saw me as a threat to power and continued. As an adult, I made the decision that clearly these individuals are old, unstable, and have never resolved their personal issues. I understand, but I still have no patience for it. I privately told another Kalma Strata council member that their fellow outbursts were bordering on harassment. Moving forward, I just ignored the problem individuals and do not engage, even in casual conversation. Clearly, they have problems, and those problems are not mine to solve. I made it clear that I will not be pushed around. They all seem to have gotten the hint, and I avoid conflict with them. They avoid conflict with me, and we now all live in a cold peace, where, so long as we don't bother each other, all is well. While it is certainly not an ideal situation, I would rather have good relationships with my neighbors. It is, in modern times, often quite impossible to get along with everybody. So practicing a peaceful yet aware avoidance strategy will, in the end, help keep things calm and less stressful. Whether you are a teen or an adult or a senior, learning to practice good avoidance and when to move to the next stage can be extremely useful, not just in the literal sense of physical sense, self-defense, but also to help you manage the hardest part of life, other people. These skills can be innate or learned in my case, it seems to be more the former, though I, through practice, I refine them as I go along. Perhaps, as an Ashkenazi Jew, it is my genes to be cautious and avoid wherever I can, as thousands of years of oppression and living in fear is likely an impact the genetics just a little bit. Think Woody Allen, the stereotypical nervous Ashkenazi Jew, albeit an extreme case. Regardless of how you come to learn these skills, learning it early and learning it well will only mean one thing, a happier, more peaceful life, one in which your visits to the hospital due to violence are low and your conflict-related stress is that of calm waters rather than a raging storm. For if you find yourself raging too much too often, you may find yourself battered, bruised, and broken because you failed to manage your mental state. See Awareness Club. Written by Jonathan Fitt. Okay, so that's avoidance. Now, I'm hoping my stories were entertaining. Uh, I think on that one, yeah, probably mine. Can't remember. 
But um, essentially, this is a confusing thing for some. Now, running or leaving the situation is a great strategy. Now, I've had students that during their yellow belt test choose to run from every conflict. Now, it's not what I want to see, but you know what? I'm not going to fail. And if you do that in purpose after I told you I want to see the techniques, I will be a little annoyed, but I have seen people run. Now, they take to heart run, always run, always run, always run, always run. Okay, maybe. Kramaga as a, as a fighting approach accepts you can't always run. Now, as a strategy, you should avoid the fight. Running is part of it. Avoiding the fight doesn't always mean running, right? It can mean don't make stupid decisions. So you need to get out of your head that it's simply running. It's so much more than that. And if all you do is run in every conflict, then you're not necessarily going to develop your actual skills. Now, some people run because they really don't want to do the training in conflict. They don't like the aggression. They don't like the violence. In which case, your Krav Maga training is only going to get you so far because you're not training properly. But in class, I'm not going to teach you, per se, how to make the correct decision. Do I run or do I talk or do I make good life decisions? I can just sort of give you a general guideline. Now, avoiding bad life decisions is so beyond what I teach in class. And, you know, my approach to teaching, for those who know, is uh, uh, both in practical Kramaga, but also a life mentor in some ways. I'm not the best person to learn from because I've made many mistakes, but all I can do is tell you what I've learned in my life from my mistakes and, and stuff. And some people like it, some people don't. But I think for beginners, you really need to, again, understand so much more. So, you know, I think the example I often use is, is a party. Like, this applies to teenagers, there's bullying situation. Consider you really want to go to the party because of social pressure. You want to be cool. You go to the party and someone that you know is there who's threatened you previously or you have really bad blood uh, in school or something and you stay and things go horribly wrong. Now, if you know the person is at the party, don't go to the party. Just don't do it. Now, if you go to the party and they're there, you can always leave. I've done that. Right. The example I did was the Halloween story. Someone was there. They recognized who I was. They were probably drunk. I don't trust this person and they're violent. They have a violent history. So, um, you know, it's time to leave. And often ego prevents people from going from that. Right. Now, as an adult, as you get older, the social pressures, unless you're a fucking socialite. Uh, yeah. Guilty pleasure. I was watching the bling ring, the Asian uh, sort of thing on Netflix. It's good fun, but you, I just can't stand that. Like, don't, why are you hanging out with people you don't like? Hey, but I'm not a socialite. So generally, and most of you probably aren't, generally um, when you uh, are an adult, it's easier to avoid because once you start having a family, as long as your family isn't the issue, and I'll talk about avoidance regarding that as well, um, you don't have to do things with people you don't want to. Now, on that note, if you if you interpret and I, this happens a lot, actually, with people with anxiety or depression. I've, I've seen it in my students and, uh, you know, due to COVID realizing I do it sometimes, too, is that if you have an issue with a person, a human being that's not being violent, you just have a misunderstanding or disagreement or you just don't like that. Or, you know, if there's someone you don't really need to deal with, great. If they're a boss, if they're a girlfriend, if they're a son, daughter, father, mother, someone that you need to keep in your life for whatever reason 
Now, I'm, I'm not talking toxic. I'm talking just problematic situations. You can't be a passive-aggressive person. Some people are assholes with passive-aggressive. You can't just avoid. You're going to have to talk to people, right? you got to go into stage two sometimes. You can't always avoid. Now, in violent situations, do your best to avoid it. But in uncomfortable situations, do not take the teachings of Kramagov avoidance as always run or never confront. Because that's actually counter to Kramagov of confront. Now, societal pressures say we can't always confront. And practical realities say we can't always confront. And when it comes to physical violence, confrontation is not good in real life outside of rings. But confronting is a big part of Israeli culture. It's a big part of Krav Maga. So you can't get it twisted, girl, um, with avoid all the problems. You got to deal with stuff sometimes. And, you know, looking back in my life, I've done that because, you know, COVID made me realize I have some social anxieties. But sometimes you got to suck it up and deal with people. And sometimes there's con communication issues. Maybe it's English as a second language, or maybe they're just being egotistical. But you have to decide, is this something I can sort of push to the side? Do I really need to deal with it? Or is this something that's going to negatively affect me ongoing if I continue to avoid it in a pass or deal with it in a passive-aggressive uh, way? So you really have to assess, one, is it a physically violent situation, and can you avoid it, right? Sometimes, again, life choices. A common one. I did a whole thing about abuse, I think, a while ago, but that's a common one. I'm sorry, and it's unfortunately usually women in Western societies. I'm talking about in Western societies. Other cultures and other places, it's very different. But in Western societies, if you have a history of abusive relationships, at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, what decisions are you making? You are not avoiding this. If you had one abusive relationship, okay. Well, it's not okay, of course, but it happens you see the signs popping up in another relationship leave doesn't always happen so often if you have a history of bad relationships you are failing to avoid so avoidance can be for physical it can mean run it can be don't do that thing again it can see recognizing through learning experiences it can be uh, just not having people in your life that don't need to be there right it's not always just physical and you can't always run from your problems Kramaga teaches that as well. Or you can't always run from problems. From a strategic point, no problems is better problems. But that's impossible. <laughs> it just is. So sometimes you have to move to stage two or move forward confronting if it's physical, potentially violent, or confronting in aggressive fashion or made yourself known for more social situations. Right? I know it's uncomfortable, but that's one thing Kramaga will teach you is to deal with uncomfortable right it's just the reality of things so with that being uh said let's talk about stage two as we used in the example de-escalation or diffusing as i used to call it right we use our uh sort of let's say uh, people skills of which i do not really have again uh you really need to learn a wide variety of skills but anyways let's listen to de-escalation diffusing with some examples that are not all mine. The four stages of self-defense, de-escalation, or often known as diffusion, or diffusing, or any other synonym. So, you are unable to avoid the threat you identified, stage one, 
at least you were able to see it coming and have not been taken by surprise. Congratulations, but there is now some fast work to do. Welcome to stage two, de-escalation, diffusion, etc. I am neither a psychologist nor a hostage negotiator, but over my 42 years I have figured out a few tricks for talking to people and getting oneself out of ugly situations. The two tactics I have employed most often throughout my life are tactical empathy and reframing, though I didn't know how the names for what I was doing at the time. Tactical empathy. In his book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depends on It, ex-hostage negotiator Chris Voss describes tactical empathy as understanding the feelings and mindset of another in the moment and also hearing what is behind those feelings so you'll increase your influence in all the moments that follow. Figure out what is motivating the other person, then leveraging that information to shape the encounter by expressing common understanding. Reframing. A frame is someone's point of view and expectation of what is normal in a given interaction, based on their belief and emotional state. If you walk up to someone shouting angrily, you expect them to react either fear or their own anger. With their fear or own anger. Reframing involves changing the narrative and redefining what is normal for the, what I, normal is for the interaction. If the person you're shouting at reacts with a smile or a friendly laugh, your brain's plan for a heated exchange has been derailed. Your frame has been broken, and now you have to stop and reconsider the rules of engagement in that encounter. Of course, both of these methods require an understanding of people and a willingness to engage people verbally, a bit of creativity and a whole lot of confidence. But as with any skill, they can be improved through practice. Developing these skills can, by handy in, can be handy in all sorts of non-threatening situations as well. I have leveraged tactical, tactical empathy and reframing to get into bars for free, skip lines, dodge fees, etc. Though in mundane context, it is less about tactics and more about finding common ground and being friendly. I'll illustrate these tactics using two examples from my past in which I talked my way out of potentially disastrous situations. The International Football Incident In 2014, myself and a friend traveled to Sao Paulo, Brazil to attend the 20th FIFA World Cup Tournament. We had done our research ahead of time. We were advised to avoid wearing flashy clothes and jewelry so you don't look affluent carry a drop wallet, a secondary one, with some fake cards and small bills that you can toss down to distract muggers in order to flee, and stay out of favelas. Also, we learned that Brazil has two major religions, Catholicism and football. So, you have to be careful what neighborhoods you go into wearing a specific team's kit. They were a bit forgiving during the World Cup. The sixth game we attended was a round of 16 match between Argentina and Switzerland. The emotions were already tense in the crowd, as we slowly mobbed into a packed stadium. This is the knockout round. Whoever loses this game goes home. Loses the game goes home. This is further fueled by a long-standing rivalry between the nation's national teams of Argentina and Brazil. Argentina would love a chance to defeat the host country. We arrived in our section and suddenly realized we'd made a huge mistake. 
not wanting to sport a Brazil jersey in a rival crowd, and not having vested interest in either team's success, we chose to wear our Canadians women's national team's jersey to the game. Not for a moment considering the fact that they are red and white, the same color as Switzerland's kit. Our seats happened to be right in the middle of a sea of rowdy, drunken Argentina supporters, borderline hooligans. Look up soccer hooligans. There are white and blue striped shirts everywhere, and only two security guards in sight. The beer-fueled shouts of Hio de Puta started flying at us. As we walked up the steps, I could think was great. We are going to be responsible for the 2014 World Cup ride. We reached our seats, and the guys all around us started sarcastically chanting up Swiss. I had to diffuse the rising tension fast, or this was going to be less than enjoyable experience. If Argentina loses, or even gets scored on, it could turn deadly. I faced the guy doing the most taunting in English and say, in a friendly manner, Looked like you boys are pretty excited about this match. He chuckled I, at my comment. I had him. I extend my arm, my hand. I'm Corey. This is Holman. We are from Canada. He shook it and introduced himself and a few of his friends. But they were still a few on either side, behind him and behind us, who looked unimpressed. Looking at them specifically, I asked, Are you all from Argentina? One guy offered up that he was from a town on the border with Paraguay and it took 20 hours to drive here. I replied, Buddy, that's hardcore. We had to save for four years to make this trip. And then I stated to the effect, this is do or die time, eh? Which was met with a chorus of passionate tales of Argentina highs and lows in recent past. We then talked about our jerseys, and I went on to make a few jokes about how what little Spanish I knew was mostly swearing and talking about women. By the end of the match, they were buying us beers. We were sharing pictures of our kids, and fortunately, we were celebrating Argentina's victory with them. Argentina nearly made it to the finals, but were defeated by a stellar German squad. How did we go from targets of hatred and decisions to friends, derisions of two friends? As we entered the section of the stadium, I was in mental color code orange. As the rowdy Argentinian fans presence was a potential threat, we'd done our research. In the scenario that the threat could not be avoided, we had ticketed seats. They were no standing areas, and I was not about to walk away from a World Cup match that I traveled to another country to see. Their behavior essentially put me into mental color code red, as even without our participation, we were in verbal conflict. I had to de-escalate, and had to do immediately, before mob mentality kicked in and one of our harassers is inspired to move from verbal to physical. The source of the conflict came from the assumption of Argentinian part that we're going to return to the same aggression that they had shown us. My goal became, one, reduce or eliminate their aggression, two, remove their desire to harm us, and three, bond with them to solidify the peace as a bonus. 3.5, make them see us as worthy protection from other aggressors. My path toward these goals was as follows. 1. I started by immediately breaking their frame. They expected we would either return to their vitriolic team pride with our own or cower to be source of amusement for the whole game. By engaging them with humor rather than anger or meekness, I disrupted their angry, passionate narrative. Similar to physical disrupting and off-balancing an aggressor with your own actions. If 
you can get someone to laugh, it tends to shift their opinion of you towards the positive. In that too, in that total moment of disruption, I replaced their hooligan frame with the groundwork of my camaraderie frame. I named us and offered a handshake, thus humanizing us instead of remaining generic. Rival fans. 3. I then spotted the doubtful ones and kept them engaged with trivial, simple questions that invited them to ex exert their pride, while at the same time hopefully opening up about themselves. Are you all from Argentina? This led to a more personal connection, as they have confirmed a part of their identity to me. It also created an opportunity for establishing common ground. 4. We had to save for four years to make this trip. Not specifically true, but it establishes three points in common. A shared passion for football, we aren't locals, and we are regular working class lads. What I call economic camouflage. 5. The above statement also satisfies their egos a bit by ind indicating that A. I am impressed by their commitment, and B. We aren't wealthy North American jet setters. 6. Bringing up their team's do-or-die potential again affords them an opportunity to exert their pride, passion, and identity in a positive way. It also incorporates Dale Carnegie's advice. You can make more friends in two months by being interested in them than by two years by making them interested in you. By the time I'm asking them to regal me with the history of Lionel Messi and La Abelesetta, sorry for the pronunciation, I've accomplished goals one and two, and I am deeply into goal three. While there were still hostiles in the area whom kept, we kept an eye on, they, w the way the boys are in our immediate vicinity were in, uh, interacting with us deterred aggression. As at the bonus 3.5, goal was not assured. We beat a hasty retreat to the exit, the second the match ended. Ego-driven versus predatory. In the above example, the threat was a bunch of drunken football fans looking for a hit of dopamine by way of national pride. They sought it through intimidation, and I gave it to them. Instead, through jovial camaraderie, dare I say that I might have been chiseled away in their preconceived notions a bit. When considering your tactics, be aware that what at works for ego-driven threats won't necessarily work for predatory threats. The former can be manipulated by either feeding their ego or reframing it. By feeding, I mean that de-escalation could be simple as saying, I don't want to fight you, you kick my ass. Or yeah, I was looking at your wife, but she'd never take me over you, buddy. For reframing, reread the above in discussion, fight or flight. The hard-to-hurt crew notes, submit as possible alternatives. There is a link. As always, be aware of variable variables as such as culture, context, and the demeanor of the threat. Looking weak or submissive may actually escalate the situation in some regions or contexts, whereas in other meetings, a challenge head-on is an act of de-escalation. As counterintuitive as it may be seem, whatever your options you choose, do it with confidence. However, a predatory threat is more complicated, as the assailant may be dead set on harming you for reasons you may not be able to account for. E.g. they are high, mentally, emotionally unstable, desperate, a habitual offender, etc. It may be your attempt at verbal de-escalation is really a distraction to buy you time or set up the strike first. Gunbar Fight at the not-so-okay corral.
I have an eclectic taste in music, but I, over the years, I've tended towards the numerous varieties of metal, punk, and industrial. Spending or misspending most of my youth in Alberta, the genres were sometimes hard to find, and one inevitable inevitably ended up in the country bars more often than not. But that's okay, because I can three-step and line dance with the best of them, raised in Alberta. Let's break this one down as we go along. On one such evening, I found myself with a group of friends in southern Alberta at a popular bar called Coral. Coral. There was many with the name over the years. Everything was going well. The music was good, as it could be considered the genre, and the drinks were flowing like water. Going well, that is, until one innocuous trip to the bathroom. I turned from the urinal to find that I'd been followed by five cowboys, I come from a farming ranch heritage, and these boys didn't look like the real thing. Regardless, we are alone. It's five on one. At this point, it bears mentioning that in my teen and twenties, I had hair down to the middle of my back and generally dressed in a band shirt with torn jeans or fatigue pants. In this case, I knew I was going into a potentially unwelcoming place and had not adapted to the local customs, because I didn't give a fuck. The de facto leader spoke first. We don't appreciate fags in here. It is a southern Alberta, after all, the nexus of the farm belt and Bible belt. Under the surface, this threat is clearly ego-driven. They are insecure men, but their actions are predatory, i.e. they stalked me and intended me harm for a specific reason. I need this to stall long enough to either get to the door or be lucky enough that someone else comes in as a distraction. I play dumb. If I see any, I'll let you know, and start moving to the door. Unsurprisingly, they block me. Why do you look like that? He asked. It becomes clear that they don't want to just kick my ass. They want to intimidate me first in order to send a message. Or perhaps, more likely, they are cowards and no one wants to start it. My next gamble was to keep them talking while edging towards the door and keeping them calm, making it clear I am not weak or intimidated. I didn't know the trick of humanizing back then. In the situation with these people and in the given context, being submissive would have encouraged them. I keep my hands up in a semi-passive position and ask, what about, what about this looks gay? One of the guys shouted, your faggy hair. I saw an opportunity to diffuse and reframe with humor. I replied, I've heard that criticism before. I'll consider it. Surely one of you boys can think of something more original. It got stifled the laugh from one guy, but not enough to indicate that I had shifted the mindset of the group. Fortunately, another one shouted, and it's ugly. I tried again. This guy cares what I look like, now who's gay? Bad move. There are effective ways to turn insults into reframing tools, but shaming or prodding the already emotionally unstable ego is not how you do it. But I was young and stupid. They have an even more heated reaction, swearing and gesturing. One guy even started wrapping his belt around his knuckle. My final chance was to reach the door involved a risky reframe. I said, whoa, I've got piss on my hands. Mind if I wash them first? They let me. At the sink, I had a clear path to the door, but tragically, it opened inward. And I also noted that I had created a secondary, though terrible, option by getting close enough to the stall that I could bail into it at least bottleneck and align my attackers if escaped proved impossible. 
again buying times. I didn't know how to fight at this point in my life, but my instincts regarding herd mentality were to square off myself to the leader and try to drop in first hopes of scattering a few of the others. However, now that I'm in group fight scenarios, you go for whoever is closest. I kept edging towards the door, but made sure they were still all in front of me. At this point, the door opened and a bouncer was doing his round. He looked at them, looked at me, saw our positioning and body languages, and said, All of you, get the fuck out. I headed straight back to my friends and introduced the idea that it's time to go home. Overt Predatory Threats Fortunately, unfortunately for this post, I had never had to do de-escalation, despite overtly predatory threats. That is, situations in which the attacker is deeply committed to the threat and is in your face so fast that you are starting at a disadvantage. For example, being mugged at knife point getting jumped without warning. I've either managed to avoid them, albeit narrowly in a few cases, or talked them down before I, they made their intense cl intentions clear. Though, in my travels, I have picked up a few pieces of advice that apply in most predatory scenarios and in many ego-driven encounters as well. 1. Don't argue. Do you really want the, to aggravate someone who's already in the middle of a poor decision? If someone demands your wallet, are you willing to get stabbed over a few bills and some replaceable cards? Again, submission may be the safest de-escalation, but you may have to know your context. Probably will. Otherwise, if you see a chance to reframe or employ tactical empathy, do it. 2. Don't go to a second location. Allowing a predator th predatory threat to take you somewhere else greatly increases the chances that things are going from bad to worse. Sexual assault, murder, kidnapping, etc. Yes, this conflicts with one, but it's more important. 3. Don't demand. When someone is angry, insisting that they calm down never works. If someone is trying to exert power over you, meeting force with force is unlikely to have positive results. Speak calmly and with confidence. Please leave me alone rather than fuck off. 4. Do get trained in self-defense. Further considerations. Whether you managed it by roguish charm or by clear confidence statements, just because you talked yourself out of a bad situation doesn't mean that the threat has been stopped. The threatening party may change their mind if you look weak as you leave or if you present them with an irresistible opportunity for a sucker punch. You prevented the situation by being alert. Don't squander that now. When you remove yourself from the situation, assess once again. Are you now on good terms with potential threat? Does their body language indicate that they are barely holding back? Are their friends looking at them expectantly or chastising their inaction? Either way, now that you have a chance to get away, do so confidently, not arrogantly, and keep your eyes on the threat, directly or indirectly. Depending on the situation, you may need to walk backward, cautiously, maintaining awareness of the threat and your surroundings with your hands up in a semi-passive stance until you are clear to escape. It may be that you are simply ne you need to keep an eye on the threat in the reflection from a stored window or take a quick look over your shoulder as you cross the road, which you should be doing immediately to create space. Understand 
that until you are completely clear of the threatening person or situation, you must be still thinking and acting in mental color code orange. Situational awareness, as always, remains important. Are they about to regroup and chase you? Has frustration led them to pull out a weapon? Be prepared at any time to move immediately to stage three. Written by Corey. Audio by Jonathan Fader. Okay, how was that? Now, some of the writing is probably better than mine because it was from other people who are more articulate. Now, I'm going to be really honest with myself. I have a very sensitive nervous system. Day to day, I'm actually pretty calm. But if my nervous system gets triggered to the next stage where I actually go combative, it it loses it. So uh, social things can set me off sometimes. Now, that causes me to be overly aggressive and it doesn't work very well for this stage. Something for me to work on. And it's very important to understand how are your verbal skills, right? I can pull the crazy card and get people to back off in de-escalation, which is a different strategy. It's the same stage of self-defense, but it's a slightly different strategy. The real thing that everyone should learn to do is learn to communicate, which is increasingly more difficult uh, in this world when people keep changing definitions, uh, people perceive things differently socially and otherwise, people have different definitions, like just I completely different ideology, language barriers, uh, cultural differences. What you think is calming the situation down may actually be making it more so when, that's why I am big on being culturally aware. This isn't a focus on race. It's a focus on culture, right? Uh, because the more you understand the culture of the person you're dealing with, the more you can understand how they are going to react, likely based on your knowledge or not going to react, and how you can use the fusion. Also, making connections with people is really important. Uh, some of the stories used exactly very good uh, examples of calming the situation down, particularly the international football incident, right? I like that one, not mine, right? Um, so it's very important to understand that talking your way down or realizing you're over your head uh, is really important. There is a video online, I can't remember what it's called, but it's an older gentleman who is teaching self-defense and he was talking about bar scenario. Let's be honest, You've hit on someone else's girlfriend in a bar, okay? A lot of people do this. Or the other way, on someone's boyfriend, that happens too. Um, unless you see them with the person and they're acting in a way that would give you indication, you don't always know, or you just bump into them and you start talking. Now, the gentleman is using an example, like, well, I'm sorry, like, I didn't know. Uh, let me buy you let me buy you a beer. Um, and people like that. Using tactics like that, in more aggressive situations are super important. Now, here's where I can actually translate it to a non-self-defense scenario. Relationships, right? It's really important. Now, when you're starting out a relationship, um, you don't know the person that well. But as you get going, you'll start to know each other much better and you can realize when the other person is annoyed. So applying de-escalation strategies or simply of, uh, giving space is a de-escalation strategy is appropriate. Now, this is why I say Kramaga and these tactics can be used beyond physical confrontations. But knowing how to do it is a skill in its own. I still suck at it in many ways. Again, as I said, I have a sensitive nervous system when I actually feel threatened for a variety of reasons. No discernible trauma, so it makes little sense to anyone who knows me well, but it's still there. You do have to know, though, that if you really struggle, 
there's something going on. For example, if you're a person, I, I've had students like this, and I know people like this, that find yourself getting sucker punched all the time. It's something you're saying or doing, and you don't realize that you're not de-escalating the situation. You're actually making it worse, and your people skills and situa- uh, situational awareness are such that you're basically clueless to what the problem is. And if you keep getting punched, it's something you're doing in this stage. You are failing de-escalation. Now, you could do things like uh, read more to increase your vocabulary and your knowledge. Just remember, if you sound like an intellectual prat, a lot of people, particularly in a bar scenario, are going to think you're talking down to them because people who are not very well read do not like you correcting them. They they find it annoying. Um, So there's that. You could go to join new clubs and put yourselves into different situations so that you get a wider variety of experiences with a wide variety of people. It's all about practice, as is with everything. Now, you could do something like join uh, Toastmasters. It's a speaking club. I think it's kind of culty, and I'm sure I'm going to get flamed for that. Uh, Perhaps it's because I've just only met culty people or people who are running their club like garbage to where I'm not impressed. Uh, To be fair, I've never been to an actual meeting, but for a lot of people, that's a useful tool where it's a basically how to speak in front of people. Now, it's a that's a fear I got over a long time ago for reasons I don't even understand, but whatever. Um, the escalation is complicated. Um, think about like FBI or police uh, hostage negotiator. This is the thing they excel at. Now, to be honest, uh, what is there a master class? I think with Chris Voss, I, I wasn't that impressed by the master class program as a whole, like the master classes in general, but. I think that um, it's a naturally gifted skill to be able to calm people down and talk to people. I'm not even entirely sure you can be a master at it even with practice. A lot of people just can't. So you have to be aware. Am I a person who just makes things worse? In which case, I need to learn to make it so I just at least keep things neutral. (laughs) Or am I someone who has the gift of gab just instinctually and I can read people? I suck at reading people. I may be a little autistic. Who knows? Uh, I'm too functional to be diagnosed with anything other than I'm a very screwed up person. But I understand my communication skills are not the best, so I'm aware of that. Right? I, so I just don't put myself in situations if I don't have to. Um, but you do have to realize it's a super complicated de-escalation. And there's so much to it. And you're not likely to learn it from uh, your Krav Maga class. Like, it's just you. It's not enough time in the world unless... You're training people, you have a, the ability to run a school like five, six days a week and one or two days a week for an hour. You're offering that kind of course as an optional or add-in. I would love to do that. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the students. So in general, and that's going to be the case that most Krav Maga instructors don't have the skill or time to teach that aspect. You'd have to probably hire someone else, bring them in specifically for communication skills uh, and developing it. But it's super important, right? The more you're able to communicate, the better. And a, an example that annoys the shit out of me, but whatever, is that uh, I believe the most employable in Western countries, again, the most employable bachelors, and by the way, bachelors are just pieces of paper that are largely useless for many applications, but uh, bachelors of English and a bachelors of history are actually two of the most hireable uh, degrees not because they're practical and they're getting a job in English or in history. It's because those particular uh, bachelors spend four years or so developing 
written skills, developing communication skills, and developing argumentative skills. You could throw in uh, philosophy there, I suppose. That's very hit or miss depending on your professor. A lot of them are shit now. Um, but communication is super important. And the better you are at communicating, along with applying your strategies, the easier it is not to have to go into stage three or four. Right, Stage three and four being what we train the most in Krav Maga classes, the practical physical, and stage one or two that I have to constantly remind you of, but they're their own complex things that require a lot of self-work to get going. But let's say you're in a physical confrontation, and I should escalate, should it escalate, should it escalate, true. If it's not a violent situation, there is no reason that you should be striking first. Right, unless you're in a situation you've told your friends I have a short nervous system because of training and they are goading you on and your nervous system just gets launched and then boom, you punch them in the throat. Well, that you kind of warn them though, so it's fair. But in general speaking, you should not just be punching people because you're upset. This is not acceptable in a modern society. If the apocalypse happens and shit goes down the drain and I'm prepared for it and you're not, by all means, but in the, in the modern societies, chill the fuck out. Okay, if you have anger problems, that's something to deal with. You do not get to say they were going to hit me and then hit them. You have to be able to justify it. If witnesses says, no, you're being an asshole, you're being aggressive, and you hit them first, don't move to stage three. You got to really be sure that you couldn't run, couldn't create space, could not de-escalate, and now it's the appropriate time for stage three, preemptive. So let's listen to this the four stages of self-defense preemptive what is the law of the jungle strike first and then give tongue Rudyard Kipling the jungle book 1894 as some of you know or are just finding out there are, is a process when dealing with conflict on the macro political science sociology etc it can be quite complicated and nuanced on the micro well it still is However, the process is simple enough that anyone can easily learn the basics. Preemptive is the third stage of self-defense. When you have failed to avoid or de-escalate defuse, it's time to act. This series, in this series incorporates personal stories from UTKM instructors and other students to provide context and examples for what these concepts like, look like in the real world, the various ways they can be applied, and how different approaches may play out. Preemptive is a tricky one, because sometimes it may look like you were the one who initiated the conflict. This often leads to people being hesitant to throw the first punch, even if they sense they are in imminent danger, particularly if you grew up in Canada, where, at least when I was in school, they were emphatic about never hitting, ever. Unfortunately, this stance is somewhat delusional and quite silly given that in many cases teachers or schools will not step in if there is conflict between students, or if they do, they have little power to sort out the complication situations in a meaningful way. This means they are, at least in my opinion, effectively removing empowerment and the ability for individuals to learn to solve their own problems. They tell the kids, you can never strike someone, and if the other option doesn't don't work, they are fucked. It's wrong, plain and simple. As you see... You will see from the collection of personal stories from several authors, and as Krav Maga has learned, sometimes you must strike first. Part of this comes from the fact that despite what we many believe, humans are still animals. And though we are omnivores, we are predatory in nature. This means that those who are powerful, or worse, feel powerful, 
will rarely pick fights with those they perceive as stronger than them. Just like lions on the savanna, predators will target the old, the very young, and the weak in the herd, because the strong ones will either fight back or stick together for strength. But in the wild, predators cannot afford to take significant damage, as it means the beginning of the end. Unlike predators in the wild, however, human predators will rarely, at least in modern times, face life or death for picking the wrong target, which can embolden them. Striking first will, at least, let them know, hey asshole, you picked the wrong fight today. Of course, if you do strike first, and then immediately realize you should have run, then it's time to run. So make sure you train hard, assess, and be smart. You will know when to strike first and when to run. It can be hard for most people to know when to make the right decision, but one thing is for sure. If you hesitate, you may look weak, and then you will end up in the last stage of self-defense, reactive, or worse. So to help you learn and contextualize the idea of striking first, here are some personal stories from several individuals to illustrate the decision-making process. 1. I must have been out of high school already, as parties were not really my thing back then. But like many, once you hit adulthood and decisions are solely on you, it is time to explore. Several of my friends at the time were already living in their own or with roommates, and several of them liked to party, which meant so did I. One friend had a place fairly close where I was living at the time, which was great because it meant I could walk to her house, and therefore let loose. Like many parties at the time, they were held at people's houses that were considered the party houses. So while there were those who were invited, it usually meant random people showed up, sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad. In this particular case, it was a mixed bag of nuts, so anything and everything could have happened, from salty tears to hard crunch of teeth breaking. This story is, of course, alcohol and eagle fueled and driven largely by my big mouth. Meaning, it was completely avoidable, but it happened nevertheless. Typically, striking first is a result of actions of someone particularly predatory, but sometimes it comes from you getting into a situation of your own creation. In this case, I fully acknowledge it was the latter. A few, or many drinks in, I started a conversation with an individual whom I was not familiar with. He had a tattoo on his arm in a language I wasn't sure of, so I asked about it. He said something along the lines of, It's Latin, because I'm Latino, and it means... I don't recall. Of course, I found this both hilarious and stupid. While Spanish, English, French, and other Romance languages have their roots in language and others, being Latino in the modern sense is not exactly the same as being someone who knows and speaks Latin. Unsurprisingly, he was not fluent in Latin, as few people outside of classical scholars and academics are even remotely verbally competent in ancient languages. Me being me couldn't resist mocking this man, not to his face, of course, because that's just rude, but rather to a friend of mine on the other side of the party. Somehow, at what point I am not sure, he heard, and he didn't take too kindly to it. Later on, he got in my face, not just by himself, but with two tall and broad individuals, one on each side. He called me out for mocking him, and then started to front by saying, Do you know who I am? Blah, blah, blah. His claim was that he was in a gang, etc. I countered with, No! But do you know who I am? No, so it doesn't matter, does it? I was trying to bluff, using aggression and intimidation. No, posturing is usually not the appropriate way to de-escalate, but it can work. 
especially if you make it believable. It can work simply because the other person, the predator, may think you are a bigger predator and you might be far more trouble than you are worth. Just know, it doesn't work for those who cannot at least look like they are a killer. Even back then, if not more so, I had a crazy eyes and a bit of a reputation for being unpredictable nut. So for me, this strategy often worked. Don't try this at home. Follow the strategies as laid out in the de-escalation post. Despite my posturing, the thoughts in my head were that of panic. Aside from the leader, who is my size, the other two could probably pick me up like I was nothing. They were all standing with their backs against the pool table. I had some space behind me, and then a set of stairs with one of those half walls to prevent people from falling down. I knew I had to do something, as these types can only be blocked for so long. Action was needed. So I threw a hard elbow in the leader's chest, which caused him to stumble back and fall partially onto the pool table. After you act, you must be ready to act further. Ratzich, among others. I was preparing to grab one of the big guys by the nuts and at least attempt to toss him over that wall down the stairs. Luckily, neither of them made a move. My bluff worked. I mean, what kind of crazy person strikes first when he's outnumbered and outgunned? Me, apparently. It's important to note, at this time, I really didn't know how to fight yet. Instinctually, I knew to strike first, even though I generally avoided it at all costs, on account of me not being a very large person. In their shock, they decided to throw more insults rather than responding physically. That's when my friend, the host of the party, herself, a short, loud-mouthed, and even more aggressive individual, came like a bat out of hell, screaming, Who the fuck do you think you are picking fights with my friends at my party? Talking to the three individuals. She was crazier than me in many ways. In some weird twist, the three guys ended up apologizing to me, shaking my hand, and it was over. I'm not really sure what would have happened if I had not struck first, but I know that it worked. Afterwards, I learned that how badly it could have gone. At least one of them was carrying a pistol, tucked in their pants. I didn't have the experience or training to know how to look for this type of thing first. Imagine had they pulled it out. It would have been a bad day. This is why it's always best to stick to the first two strategies, avoid and de-escalate. But had I not acted, it is possible they simply would have collectively jumped me. So at the time, and given the results, it would have seemed my instinct were correct. John. 2. There are many more stories I could tell that are far more exciting, but this is pertinent to the many individuals who were bullied in one way or another in school. Back in my day, I can't believe I'm starting to say that, Physically, bullying was all you had to worry about, but today it's both physical and digital, so keep that in mind. Don't engage in arguments online, it's a waste of your time. I can't recall exactly what I was doing, but I was standing in the hallway in high school, not paying attention, when I felt a hot, burning sensation under my chin. One of the kids, who ran with the popular guys, had put a lighter under my chin and ignited it. This pissed me right off, justifiably so. I had a few choice words, the specifics I'll leave out, which caused their friend, a kid who was dumb as a brick and quite scrawny, but a known brawler and quite popular, to get in my face. He was attempting to protect his lackey, who was smaller than me, and held the lighter. One thing led to another, and once again, in sheer panic, I kicked him as hard as I could in the groin. He dropped, like the brick I thought he was. They were not expecting it, and probably one of the many events that gave me the reputation of being unpredictable. No, I could not fight, 
No, I did not have a reliable backup who could and who would fight. And although many people knew who I was, I was certainly not a popular kid. Yet this ended the conflict right there and then. Furthermore, it had lasting effects. Clearly, though popular, these individuals were bullies. And the kid I kicked was, in fact, one who would engage in organized scraps at least once or twice a year. You know, those high school fights where you say, meet at me at the park, and then everyone watches. Which made it even more interesting. In any future conflict between me and him, I would take a step forward or similar, and he would often step back. One time, if I recall correctly, he even told someone else to get get me instead of doing it himself. Fascinating, isn't it? This is a story to emphasize how when it comes to bullies, they may not stop until you let them know you are not an easy target. Even if they could easily beat you in a fight, you have made it clear that an altercation with you will not be without consequences. So you see, humans are animals. Predators will usually only target those we can feel we can engage or overpower without risk of repercussion. Thus, the attitude of never strike first is simply wrong. It may, in fact, be the best and right option. It works simply because through the human condition is complex, we are still animals. John. 3. My experience with having to, or at least making the choice to, strike first was when I was in my mid to late 20s, at which time I had been training Krav Maga for about two years. I had just finished work closing at a restaurant in the city of Perth, Australia. So would have been somewhere after midnight. I had about a five-minute walk from the restaurant to the paid lot where I always parked my car. This walk involved crossing through a large park by the river. The park was only semi-lit before you reached the open-air car park, which was lit and, if you believe the signage, security patrolled, though I never saw any security the whole time I parked there. So here I am walking across the grass on my phone, but with enough of my peripheral vision working that I saw two people approaching from a comfortable distance off. They were coming from the direction of my car, and thus in between me and my car. Though, being we were a large grassy area where escape routes in all directions, as they got closer to me, I put my phone back in my pocket as if it were a natural thing. I was do- about to do it anyway. They both looked a little younger than me, say late teens to early 20s, and they looked like, let's be generous, just say juvenile delinquents. I looked towards my car and kept an eye on them without making eye contact and adjusting my path a little so that I would go around them to get to where I was going if neither of us changed course. When they got to be a few meters away, maybe 12 or 16 feet for all you North Americans, they started to engage with the usual approach. Hey, you got the time? Or can I bomb a smoke? Or something to that effect. I replied politely with, nah, sorry. Or about 12.30 or whatever the time was. But the change in direction was coming towards me. Now, my thinking at this time was basically, just be polite and don't do anything sudden or draw attention to look frightened. The particular local type I pegged those two as had a reputation of being somewhat cowards and not picking on people that stood up to them. Know your local and regional context. I simply kept walking and they kept closing the distance till one was in front of me and the other was just off to my right. At this point, it turned into the hands, <coughs> turns into a hands out towards me and, hey, you got any change? Running wasn't really an option now. 
given their close proximity, though it might have been a minute ago. And it seemed like I had decided I was worth their time. I replied again simply with, nah, sorry mate, just my card. Then before they could start asking for or demanding more, I explosively shoved one of the in front and with both hands to the chest. He fell backwards at the same time. In my mind at least, I also side-kicked the one to my right, somewhere in the middle thigh to groin area. He also fell backwards and then I ran to my car, got in and drove off. I didn't stop to look back to see if they were following. I'm pretty quick, so they may have tried for a second before realizing they wouldn't catch me. Tactically, I guess you could say I made some mistakes getting into the situation in the first place. But it was resolved with little effort on my part and quickly. Could I have simply run to my car as soon as I saw them? Sure. But that may have been unnecessary or worse. It may have made them chase me thinking I had something worth stealing. Could I have run at any other point as they closed in on me or when they initiated contact? Again, sure, but same reason as above, but they'd start their pursuit closer. Could I have simply chosen a different career or job that didn't require me to walk home alone at night? Sure, but why live in fear or let others dictate my life choices? What I definitely did right was training in martial arts and self-defense, so I had the understanding of situation I might end up in and how to deal with them. I kept cool and didn't end up in the mental state black identified that a physical confrontation was unavoidable after attempting to avoid and, well, not making great attempts to defuse, but not engaging them over long once the threat was identified, I preempted it. I struck first quickly, but only the amount of force needed to escape the situation. I didn't stick around to fight it out or finish it and didn't open with something so big I might end up facing assault changes. If, say, I had gotten it wrong and the threat was only imagined, and lastly, I made a quick escape without turning around. Evan. As you have read from the above examples, sometimes, whether due to circumstances or ego, the time for stage one or two either passed or was not appropriate, and the next stage preemptive action, good old striking first, was the next logical step. Be aware, however, that it often requires a good read on the situation, the ability to strike first, with maximum effort, effect, and the understanding that it may fail, so you must be ready. When it fails, you must be prepared to either run or continue to fight, applying all of the techniques and strategies you know. This is why, despite its effectiveness, you must always try to avoid the fight and de-escalate whenever possible. But when the time comes, know that it is always better to strike first than to be struck first. More or less written by Jonathan Fader with insert from Evan. Okay, I imagine at this point it's a very long podcast, but there's a lot to cover. It's super important. Now, if you're going to strike first, make it count. Now, in the examples I gave, I'm very lucky because these people were full of shit. Again, I make smarter decisions, so I tend not to be in actual fights on the street. But my strike firsts worked. And that was that. But in a situation or with people that are more violent, you strike first and then you must apply a reticent. If you strike first after and you can justify it and the force you use, by the way, you must apply a Because remember all those concepts we attached at the beginning of this, right? Analyze, perceive, etc. Reticent, analyze uh, the awareness color code. You need to be aware of them. They factor in 
heavily whether you decide to strike or not first. Now, you also have to read uh, body language. So again, if you're like fully on the spectrum of autism, this is going to be a tricky thing for you to do reading body language because 80% of uh, communication, as they say, is like nonverbal. Me, being a very literal verbal person, makes it very difficult. I don't read people's body language very well unless I'm around them all the time. If I'm around someone enough, I'm excellent at reading. Oh, they're annoyed. Um, but with people I don't know and I'm not around all the time, I suck. Right, but you can listen to things like voice tone, uh, posturing, right? Are they are they clenching fists? Are they f- sticking their chest forward, right? Are they making aggressive comments, right? Verbal cues. Are their friends getting closer? Are they starting to surround? What's going on physically in your environment, right? These cues uh, are important. Someone who like turns their shoulder, looks away might still be getting aggressive. And if you strike them first, right? If someone's faking, uh, 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 hit them first. They're basically initiating a violent situation by faking. Because if you wait, often they'll just hit you, right? Or they're looking for something. But of course, if you have the space to run, then run if it's appropriate, right? But you have to make the decision, I'm going to strike and then I'm going to apply Retsev if the threat doesn't stop. And that's the key, especially from a legal perspective. If the threat stops, you stop. Now, if you need to arrest or detain them, of course, do so if it's appropriate to your situation and you have the skill. But if you strike, realize that they're a, that was a mistake on your part, but they paused, boom, time to bail. Right? Striking first doesn't mean you stay to fight. Striking first means you realizing the situation is getting worse and you want to reset their nervous system as per uh as per you know the four stages uh of the nervous system right analyze perceive that and and how your your uh your brain works you're trying to reset their ability to function to either give you more time to run or to stop them as a threat either the single strike say a hard groin strike drops a lot of people they may get back up and try to stab you after that so you have to be aware if you see them reaching for something after a first strike and they're on the ground either run or continue your violence against them because they've actually just escalated by going for a weapon of course if you hit and they drop and you start kicking their head in that would be aggravated assault or worse depending on your country's legalities of course so again the first strike is about resetting their mental process cause pain off balance and then if they continue to resist you immediately apply reptive and continue to go this strategy is not giving you permission just to punch people because you're upset as i said you got to get over your anger and emotional problems this is meant when you perceive the violence is imminent they're going to be violent or things are about to get way worse if you do not intervene. I cannot be clearer on that, especially in a more modern society. Again, apocalypse scenario, have at her with whatever morals you want because you know I do believe morals are relative, but in a society that we live, we do have some standards, so you need to sort of uh, stick to those. So knowing when to strike first is a challenge. If you suck at reading body language, if you have no experience to understand violence in a practical reality, it can be really difficult to read the situation. Now, you also have to be careful. You know, they say, listen to that feeling. That gut feeling is, even if it's wrong, is right. Because, you know, people are trying to say, oh, that gut feeling is a racial thing. Well, no, if you feel uncomfortable in a situation, you're right in the sense that it's time to leave or time to do something. So if that gut feeling you're getting very uncomfortable, you should do something. 
and if it just keeps getting worse and worse because if you can't run and you're just getting worse and worse internally the chances are you're going to say or do something that's going to screw up and they're going to strike first so it's that's sort of a good marker internally like how are you feeling are you feeling anxiety now if you have anxiety in general well you need to work on that but if it's like i can tell you if someone gets aggressive with me i get an immediately different feeling internally and i have to like calm down to make a rational decision right something that you know hopefully by the time an old man will be resolved but until then right even if it's just interpersonal so you have to really think and calm down and 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 decide is the preemptive strike warranted the unfortunate thing for some people is the only way you're going to know is through experience do not go out starting fights that's not what i just said so don't interpret it that way but just like the dealing with uh, color code black you might not know how to read properly till you put yourself in a lot of situations some professions might be really good at reading so an actor might be really good uh at controlling their body language for example so our um sociopaths who practice manipulation tactics are really good at managing those things there are lots of strategies out there to learn to read body languages lots of books lots of movies lots of whatever so there's lots of resources out there to learn how to read body language properly as a general rule i've never bothered because i'm instinctually pretty good at it Plus, I'm not much of a researcher, as you know, by my lack of uh, citation sometimes. But I'm trying. One day when I have big boy money, I can hire someone to do that for me. But until then, I have to go off of memory. And you can just sort of loosely trust me that I, I read it somewhere. And I'm being reasonable in the recall. Not perfect, but reasonable. So preemptive is a tricky one because it can get you into legal trouble if you cannot uh, apply it appropriately and justify it and it can also be tricky knowing when to do it uh, if you don't know how to read people so again these stages are the strategy how you learn how to apply them is a lifelong process now let's put the post on reactive or the last stage of self-defense the four stages of self-defense reactive finally we are here the last and least desirable stage of self-defense. If you have reached this stage, you have failed to follow the previous steps and advice, or your attacker simply had a better tactics and skills than you. In which case, why did you want? Why did they want to attack you, and why did you allow such a situation to happen in the first place? Too often, people think that they should wait for the other person to start the fight for legal reasons. But this isn't always true, and definitely isn't safe. If it is justifiable, you can explain that you should strike first. The worst case scenario for this stage is that you have already been punched, kicked, or grabbed, and you are now forced to react, fighting fire with fire. However, you must understand that, should you, that you should only use as much force as is required to stop the threat. In most cases, when they stop, you stop. If they don't stop or they escalate the violence, then you must keep going using Retsif and other principles, or you must either escalate the violence yourself or find your exit. Remember, at this point, there is the possibility that you have already been or about to be overwhelmed. This means your reaction needs to be fighting with everything you have, digging deep inside for aggression and sheer willpower, 
not stopping until you are stayed. Something to consider with this stage, if you have lots of personal stories involving you have to react to violence, then you have repetitively been making bad decisions and have not improved your verbal or awareness skills. So unfortunately, these stories here are limited, because you know, while bad decision making brought me to these stages, smart decision making limited the violence. 1. It was high school. Again. And, to be honest, I don't recall what had been said. Probably a he said, she said situation. But, here I was, in a local community center, minding my own business, when a group of people whom I knew and was friendly with surrounded me. I wasn't at all expecting an attack, because after all, I thought we were friends. However, they were from a different ethnic group, and though some of them had told me they respected me, if it ever came between me and someone of their own background, even someone they didn't know, they would always support the latter. This is a lesson I learned early. While it is not popular to discuss, different groups of people can operate by different social and cultural rules. Even if you live in the same country. So you really should be culturally and socially aware. In order to understand that, what you thought was no big deal might be interpreted completely different by other people. Anyway, back to me being surrounded. I was legitimately confused. As far as I knew, at the time, I hadn't said or done anything out of order. It seemed like another person or persons whom didn't like me was trying to get me jumped. The largest of my aggressors, maybe 300 pounds, was the de facto ringleader, though I knew he really wasn't the one I should be afraid of. He made some comments and then promptly punched me hard in the solar plexus. I smiled, then asked if that's all he had. Plus one for building my ab abs the previous few years. I guess it paid off. It also goes to show the difference combat combative training can make. Though he was big, he didn't actually know how to use his weight effectively in a punch. Otherwise, I would have been on the ground getting my head kicked in. Here is where you probably think I immediately started swinging back and fought my way out because this is reactive self-defense. Wrong. Remember, I was literally surrounded by a circle of people who were looking for a reason to do some damage. It probably would have been a terrible idea to return the aggression at the moment. If you know anything about use of force models, you know that you must always try to go back down the scale whenever possible. So I jumped back to stage two and tried to de-escalate. Obviously, the fact that th his hard punch did little and my reaction being that of amusement threw them off completely, as this is probably not how the scenario had played out for them in the past. I used it to my advantage, saying whatever it was I said in the moment, managing to convince them it must have been some kind of miscommunication by someone else, and it was over. Though for a hot minute, I was definitely freaking out on the inside. They left, possibly pondering the overall situation, and I went on a way to safer, hopefully greener pastures. Well, not really. I probably just went back to hanging around at school or home. So remember, react last, but if you're clearly in a bad spot, try to scale it back, down the stages of self-defense to give yourself better odds. John. 2. Another reactive situation occurred not in high school, but rather in an allegedly more adult and serious environment. The Army. The IDF, to be precise. 
For much of my time in the army, I was not really in a good place mentally. Not because of the army per se, but due to the manner in which the difficult environment exacerbated my depression, which had not yet been diagnosed, and therefore I had no tools to deal with. That difficult environment came in the form of little to no sleep, crappy Hebrew fluency, and even worse people skills. This meant I didn't get along with most people, or didn't like most people enough to bother getting along with them. I generally kept to the small group of close friends I had made, usually those who spoke English and were, I thought, a little more intelligent than the average soldier. Others whom I felt lacked discipline or intelligence and was shocked that they were allowed in the army at all were the ones I often had arguments with, or worse. Most of the time people just thought I was the slightly older and kind of crazy Canadian, but I was respected on account of being a volunteer while they were drafted without a choice. Service is mandatory in all Israeli citizens over 18, though there are some exceptions. However, some people I just couldn't stand, and made it clear that they were neither my friend nor someone I could care about at all. Some people got it, some did not. One individual whom I did not like, and whom often didn't get the hint, failed to fuck off on one too many occasions. Sleep-deprived and foreign language combined resulted in poor decision-making and even poorer understanding of how things might translate differently. For example, in English, you say son of a bitch. Most people, at least where I'm from, don't take it too seriously. Whereas saying son of a bitch in Hebrew, in a particular to Mizrahi or Spartak Jews, usually didn't go over so well. One time, during a heated argument with the aforementioned individual, who was annoying the shit out of me again, I called him a son of a bitch. He dared me to say it one more time, so I did. He threw a hard, wide hook punch. Luckily, I was well-versed in 360 defense and blocked it, bursting in and stopping just short of his face with my fist. I knew he wasn't really a threat. In addition, the moment I moved in, I could feel that he was pulling his punch, realizing his mistake. I told him he was a moron and walked off. But imagine, if I had not had my hands ready, what would have happened? He probably could have knocked me out. Though the escalation was likely my fault, and I was tired and pissed off, he threw the first punch. Something I should have seen coming by his body language. But I didn't. Nevertheless, I was ready and I defended it without injuring him other than a bruised ego. Once again, I was also lucky that he wasn't much of a fighter and didn't immediately follow it up with something else. At this time, my skills were limited, though I often convinced people they were more than they were, which combined with my still unstable reactions to things usually kept me out of serious trouble. Had it escalated further, it is possible we would have had to stay on base when everyone else was off, or worse, army jail. These reasons were the only reasons I stopped at the time, but looking back, it was a wise decision anyway. John. 3. I was out drinking with a buddy one night, in my misspent youth, and he had overindulged by quite a bit. So we headed back to his apartment to drink some more, logically. Unbeknownst to me, at some point in the night, he had gotten in the head that one of the women I was talking to at our regular bar should have been talking to him instead. An unseen anger had apparently been welling up in him all night because that is certainly a healthy way to deal with emotional and friendship. 
At his place, we cracked a few beers and were chatting about the event uh, at the evening when he suddenly hit me with a right hook. No warning, no outburst, nothing. It wasn't a hard hit, seemingly a common theme in those who open with sucker punches, more surprisingly than impactful. I looked at him, confused. He threw a second one. I blocked it with an inside tansao, Wing Chun, and pushed him onto the couch. I had no idea that was going on, but for whatever reason, my immediate instinct was to shake up a beer bottle I was holding and spray him head to toe with perhaps to discourage further action. I turned and walked out and never heard from him again. Corey. It is interesting that most of us do not have many stories involving stage four or self-defense. Those we could think of were all over quickly, as when you are playing catch-up, in the encounter, you must react swiftly, with intent. This, of course, is a good thing, as it is indicates we either live wisely or we are all efficient in stages 1 and 2, occasionally 3. Consider that if you find yourself always on the tail end of someone else's first strike, you are failing in a fairly significant way to follow good self-defense principles and are making seriously bad decisions on a constant basis. With that being said, there is a common element between all the stories that were told through the series. In almost all, if not all, we were under the age of 25. This should say something. Science has suggested we reach adulthood, or rather the brain development stops around the age of 25 and not 18, as often legally defined in adulthood. It is also a known fact that young males under the age of 25 are also more prone to making bad, rash, or more extreme decisions. Usually, they are of the social and physical nature told in these stories. Sometimes, they result in se severe injury or jail, or worse, they lead to death. It is as though, at least according to nature, this impulsiveness is expected under the age of 25. We frown upon it, but it seems unsurprised by it. Beginning in the 25 to 30 range, there is far less forgiveness for such acts because you are now adjusting to your more stable brain chemistry. After 30, however, it is not cute anymore. If you haven't figured your shit out and, outside of your job requirements, still find yourself in stage 3 or 4 self-defense regularly, you are doing it wrong, plain and simple. I hope that this series has provided you better insight as to how to apply each stage of self-defense. Though the stories told are limited, the reality is such that if we spent time to compile stories from more people, it is likely we would have tons of examples to choose from. The theories, concepts, and principles of Krav Maga and self-defense are sound ones, which apply most of the time. But they, like most theories or ideas, mean nothing if you, as an individual, do not know how to contextualize and apply them in real life. I hope that, at the very least, this series has helped you better understand the reason behind the definition of the stages and their unique challenges, and how you may better use them to stay safe and walk in peace. Written by Jonathan Fader. Stories contributed by Corey. Oh yeah, how is that? Now, I just want to put a caveat on here, because I'm had thoughts about this so if you go to the actual post there is a gif of a guy punching richard spencer now if you don't know who richard spencer is he's a bit of a, a dickhead uh 
Some call him a white supremacist. Some call him a Nazi. He's in England. I won't get into the politics of England. Some of the stuff he says are not wrong, but the way he goes about it is completely fucked. And he may, in fact, be an actual white supremacist with Nazi ideologists. He's very well-spoken. Now, what this GIF uh, brought up was to punch a Nazi. Now, uh, editor wanted to put that in, and I was debating whether I like it because I don't want to encourage people to run around punching people they think are Nazis. Because, again, when that definitional thing changes, it causes problems. Now, if they're running around doing Hitler salutes in a Nazi outfit, making threats to people, then, yeah, okay. But just because you think someone's a Nazi doesn't make them so, although Richard Spencer is a lot closer to that than uh, the average person being accused of it. So I just wanted to clear that up if you're looking at the actual post. Please don't go running around punching people who you think are a Nazi. They have to be doing something that physically warrants it, okay? So just put that out there. But what the GIF does uh, emphasize is that if you're not paying attention, anyone can just sneak up. He's clearly, in the GIF, he's clearly focused on a camera and the media and some guy in black before masks were cool, ran up and punched him in the face, right? This created the trend punch a Nazi, which was absolutely absurd because that just gave some some people permission to punch anyone they thought was a Nazi. Again, I discussed that. I'm trying to keep the politics out of this one. It's a bunch of bullshit. But anyways, it's a very good thing of you don't see it coming, you're going to get hit. Now, if you get hit, if they off-balance cause pain disrupted first in the action versus reaction model, you're going to look just like Richard Spencer did where he has no reaction. Now, if you have proper training and react appropriately, you might just turn around and smoke that person back. Now, actually, a large, large percentage of self-defense training is dealing with what happens if you're attacked first. But really, you need to get into your damn head that this is the last stage. And even though we're drilling what happens if they choke you, you should be operating in the mentality of don't let them choke you. Now, an examer, example of this for uh, I, don't, one I learned in jiu-jitsu, uh, I think it was Rob Bernanke was talking. So let's say you get into side control. The question people were asking is, how do I get out of side control? And he said, paraphrasing, loosely change it. Don't get in the mentality of how do I get out of side control. Instead, get in the mentality of don't getting there in the first place. And when you actually are able to make that mental shift, which is really difficult for a lot of people, you realize I shouldn't be in reactive self-defense ever unless I really screwed up. Right? They got the choke in, you're already screwing up. And often I talk about um, rear naked choke defense. Now, the technique does work, but let's just think about this for a second. I, wa I always stress... If someone got behind you and got a rear naked choke, there's a good chance you are screwed. If they have serious malicious intent you are, and they know what they're doing, you are probably screwed. Unless your nervous system is so well trained that you know you're going to, a lot of times the technique is going to fail. At a minimum, you should be getting into a better position, that headlock position, so that you can have more options. But the reality is if someone gets behind you and locks in a rear naked choke, you're probably done. Not dead, because they have to hold it for two or three minutes. And so often what happens with people due to ego, silliness, unrealistic expectations is they learn the techniques and then they think, I can defend myself against a person. Wrong. Size matters. Timing matters. Skill matters. You should not let yourself be getting into the stage of reactive self-defense. Period. But if you do, you need to be reacting really fast. Because now you need to reset 
their mental process, right? If they're in act and you're getting hit, you're in stage one, perceive, and they're in stage four, act, right? And you're going to realize that that is a issue for you because you have to go through all four processes, right? Perceive, analyze, formulate, and act. So if they hit you and they're in act, your body is in perceive, being like, what the hell just happened? And then it goes, or perceive should be, I got hit, shit. Analyzes what just happened, right? That was a fist that hit me. Formulate is, how should I react? If you have no training, a lot of people just cower, right? Formulate, though, would be like, okay, where are they? I'm going to do this now, and then action is going, right? Again, if it takes 0.25 seconds, that's the difference between success and failure in a particular sequence. So they hit you, you're already at a disadvantage. It's a race for you to be able to reestablish yourself and to put them through Retsev and constant continuous attack back into the perceive and analyze sections before they can react, right? Mastery is when their body is just doing it at a subconscious level and they're just reacting to stuff, in which case their reaction times are going to be faster. That's why drilling matters. You need to get your reaction times down and let your body automate itself, right? But in basic conflict situations it's cause pain off balance disrupt or how you reset the person's uh situation so if they hit you first you have to recover fast hopefully before they apply retsev whether they know it or not and have you causing you to react inappropriately right so how you deal with it one training consistent training stay physically fit stay healthy this will allow your reaction times to be speed faster and drilling will get your reaction times faster right the other thing that will help is keeping distance. You need to be close enough sometimes to be able to preemptively strike if you need to because you would have already run or really left if you had the ability to. So you need to be close enough that you can strike, but just be aware that they're close enough that they can strike. So if you're not sure or you're bad at reading it, create a little extra space just outside your long range. Right Now, if they have long legs, you might want to take a little bit farther back. Uh, just know that if you do want to preemptively strike, you're going to have to get closer again. So it's a bit of a challenge to understand this but n you just understand that the techniques are such a small part of what self def good self-defense and good karmaga looks like that if you're like oh i know what to do if i get choked and then you're just waiting for someone to do it to you you're screwing it up because you're not applying the strategy and you're not applying proper procedures and and how to actually deal with these situations because you shouldn't ever get in react because you should avoid make good decisions you should um uh, de-escalate, talk your way out of it. You should create space and you should always read the situation well enough that you realize I can't do any of the first two. I got to strike first. So you should not get in the habit of getting into that side control. It should be, don't get there. Don't get there. Don't get there. Don't ever have to actually use the full technique properly. I would rather apply just basic stuff like punching in with Retsev or kicking with Retsev in order to keep them in a reset process in, in perceive or analyze, not formulate or action so that I can overwhelm them to get them to either stop or so that I can get to safety, right? So I don't know how I can stress that enough, but too many people get stuck on the, I know the technique, I can get out of it. You shouldn't be in it. And that should be drilled into your head constantly. Don't be in the situation where you are reacting. It is the last stage for a reason. It's the hardest stage, and that's why we drill these techniques so much to deal with the hardest stage. But the reality is you shouldn't have to do it because you should have done the other three stages first. So this one had a lot of information in it. Again, the concepts are all available on the blog, utkmblog.com. 
or your guidebooks if you're a student of mine, or you hear me talking about them ad nauseum, at least in the white belt classes. You need to know these concepts, and a lot of beginners struggle to know the difference between them. Now, the focus of this particular podcast was the four stages of self-defense. But again, I can't talk about them without talking about action versus reaction, the awareness color code, Retsiv, and some other strategies, other things I threw in there. Like, again, there's lots of different models like the OODA loop. Uh, I tend not to like acronym stuff, so I like... Because acronym stuff, by the way, it, uh, it's all industry-specific. So when you're talking to general people, it's uh, I, don't, I don't like acronyms as much as possible. I like to explain in-depth properly so people really understand. They don't just memorize it. I don't care if it's easy for you to do it. Learn it properly. Anyways, so I hope this has been an informative uh, episode for you on the four stages of self-defense and how to apply it with some uh, example stories and, and some more... Uh, thought-out explanations of it or just general ramblings on my part. So remember, don't end up in reactive self-defense, even if that's what we drill. It's all so that you can learn to walk in peace, meaning you don't have to be in conflict. Be a better version of you today. Is that like a 50s... It's like a Fallout poster or something. Yes, I am a nerd with gaming too. Not hardcore, but a little bit. Anyways, that is the four stages of self-defense. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions.